Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Perhaps uh, you have heard the well-known definition of faith uh, that was once given by a child. Faith, uh, the boy, the little boy said, uh, that's believing what is not true. I think if we are honest, while that definition of faith may be questionable theologically, today many people wonder whether um, when it comes to uh, even core components of the Christian story, like the birth of Jesus, such an attitude has some element of, uh, of accuracy to it. A virgin birth. Who can believe that anymore? Well, now Matthew is telling his story so as to show us that believing in the virgin birth is believing that which is true. This, he tells us, is the way it took place. This birth of Jesus Christ, well, that, he is saying, was quite unlike all the other births in the genealogy I've just described to you. This Genesis, this birth, this is how this took place. It's unique in the way it happened and unique in what it means, he is saying. And that's uh, why he... uh, uh, describes these uh, two names uh, that uh, the baby is given, which we will come to in a moment. But first of all, there are, again, we have to be honest, a number of objections that people today have to this story that really have to be addressed in order for us to uh, take seriously in the modern world this account. 
One objection is uh, one which was first developed by a, a Scottish philosopher whose name was David Hume. He argued that miracles like this one cannot have taken place in the way uh, described in the Bible. He said, however much evidence there may be for them. It's an interesting argument. Uh, David Hume said that uh, as there are, we now know in modern life, various laws of science that govern nature, you see. A miracle, that is by definition something happening against nature, well that, he argued, simply cannot occur. In other words, however much evidence there may appear to be for a miracle like this one or the others in the Bible, uh, there are many people today uh, following perhaps unknowingly uh, Hume's argument, it's influenced a lot of uh, cultural attitudes to the miraculous, Many people today would say it still cannot have happened how Matthew described, for their thinking is this, virgin births do not happen. We know that from modern science, and therefore however much evidence there may be, we can be sure that this virgin birth did not happen. Well, now, the answer to that is that uh, miracles are not a violation of the laws of nature. Oh, no. The laws of nature are really a description of what God typically does. (laughs) You see, because God is a God of order, there is order to this world. And so we can legitimately describe that order, gravity uh, and all the rest, by the name laws of nature. But for God to do something different from what He typically does is not to violate the laws of nature. It is for God to do something that He does not typically do. And actually, what's more, modern science depends upon this theological view of life, really, even though it has forgotten that in very large areas of elite science. The early scientists believed in a world of order behind the apparent chaos that we all feel, the randomness of life. They they believed that that was not the real truth. They sought behind that for a world of order. Why? Because they believed in a God of order. And so there must be order, and they sought for it. And actually, uh, some of the postmodern attitudes of life are throwing the whole scientific project into question. You see, the early scientists, Isaac uh, Newton, uh, the famous physicist, Francis Bacon, less well-known, but in some ways he was the the founding father of the empirical method, the the method of modern science. They grew out of a Reformation uh, culture, uh, a Reformation commitment that was to go back to the book of God, that is the Bible, and the Reformers questioned tradition by the nature of what the Bible actually said. They said, let's see what God actually said in the book of God, and from which that attitude, they, the early scientists, drew a commitment in parallel to go back to what they called the book of nature. If you look at the early documents, they very consciously mirrored that attitude. Well, there's the book of God, the Bible, we're going back to the book of nature. We'll question our traditions in order to find what is really happening with our own eyes. And that attitude has been called experimental science ever since. 
Now, perhaps that feels like a little bit of a sort of intellectual digression, but it really isn't, because if you think, or you know people who think in your families or among your friends, that this virgin birth simply cannot have happened, however much evidence there may be for it, usually that really isn't about uh, the evidence, as I say, because the evidence is quite persuasive, really, which we will see in a moment. It usually has much more to do with a prior philosophical commitment to the view that miracles cannot occur, and therefore this one did not occur, which is actually not very scientific. Now, to be fair, you could say that, uh, in a way, that's also what Joseph thought. (laughs) I mean, no one was expecting this, were they? Least of all, Joseph. Least of all, the husband. And yet this is what, as Matthew put it, took place. As surprising as it was. As unique as it is. Now, there are two other common objections that people have to the virgin birth, which we have to consider if we're going to take it seriously in the modern world. Objections you might have heard or read about or talked uh, with uh, friends about or discussed on blogs, if you're into that kind of thing. One is that at this point, Matthew's and Luke's account do not match. So Matthew and Luke, two of the gospel authors. And what do we say about that? Well, in my view, it's not that hard. First, we find Joseph and Mary in Nazareth, as described in Luke chapter 1. And then we have this account here of Joseph with Mary in Nazareth in Matthew chapter 1. One follows the other. And then Luke chapter 2 describes their journey to Bethlehem. And, you know, then the child Jesus with his parents go to the temple. And then they return to Bethlehem. Not mentioned the return because it's only five miles away. So it's very close. It's an easy hop, skip, and a jump. And then Matthew chapter 2 describes the visit of the Magi in Bethlehem, their flight to Egypt from, uh, from having been warned about Herod, and then the big return to Nazareth. And so it all seems fairly coherent to me. And what's more, any complexity that that quick sort of um, rough guide to how they, Matthew and Luke go together, any complexity actually underlines the validity of the gospel authors Matthew and Luke in terms of their eyewitness accounts. Because While their stories are complementary, they do go together, they do fit. At the same time, they obviously have not colluded to make up a fake story, but they're telling their own stories to make their own points. And so Jesus in Matthew is presented as the true king compared to Herod with his slaughter of the innocents. Jesus is the king. He's the king of the Jews, not Herod. Whereas in Luke, of course, he he describes the global picture, the census that took place all across the Roman world, and that presents Jesus as the Savior for the world, for you and Wheaton, for us here, now, for the Gentiles, too. Well, there's one other and last major objection that people have to the virgin birth story that Again, to take it seriously, we have to consider and uh, find an answer to and uh, consider it together. And it is a little more tricky, this one. And I'm going to deal with it now, even though it really comes at verse 23, because it requires a little bit of unraveling uh, in order for us to fit it together. And once we unravel it, I hope you bear with me as we do this, you'll find that what seems like it's a tricky problem is really a wonderful message. 
I think it's worth the time. So you look at verse 23 and you see there's the word for virgin. And that in uh, the, the uh, Greek is parthenos, which is the normal Greek word for virgin, though it can also occasionally mean married young woman, but very unusually. It's the normal Greek word for virgin. And here, obviously, Matthew saying uh, Mary was a virgin. And this word is the word that is used in the Greek version of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, from which, which that quotation in Matthew uh, is derived from where it comes. And here's the objection. The objection that has been made over and over again, and probably most of us have heard of or at one point or other in our life, is that parthenos, that is the, the, the word for virgin here, is the wrong translation for the Hebrew alma in Isaiah, which they say did not mean virgin, but instead simply young woman. And of course, if that's the case, then it really uh, undermines the coherence of Scripture in a fairly fundamental way. However, the evidence is not so clear-cut. In fact, uh, the Hebrew Amar can be used a virgin. Uh, it clearly means that in Song of Solomon's chapter 6, verse 8. There's listed uh, brides, concubines, and then Amar, that is virgins. It's distinct. And it can be used of a girl who is both unmarried and then also presumably a virgin thereby because she's unmarried as it is in Genesis chapter 24 verse 43. There's uh, Abraham, he sent off his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. He discovers Rebekah and she is Alma, she's a virgin. And Exodus chapter 2 verse 8 which describes uh, the young girl who took Moses back to his mother, in order to be uh, looked after by his mother. She was uh, a, a virgin. She was unmarried. She had no child. Now, there are five other occurrences of that word in the Old Testament. Two are probably musical directions whose meaning is now lost, is not really understood. And three, in context, have uh, shed no real light on the decisive meaning of the word. You, you translate it by, other, uh, by how you understand the word in other contexts. Thus, the great scholar Alec Matea summarized Wherever the context allows a judgment, this Hebrew word alma is not a general term meaning young woman, but a specific one meaning virgin. In other words, it's precisely the right word for that. And anyway, we might add, of course, in those days a young woman not yet married was assumed to be a virgin. And I might also point out that in various languages, the word for virgin can be used then also for young woman, uh, maiden, for instance, in English. Oh, it looks like Matthew understood Isaiah 7. <laughs> and actually, not only in this verse, uh, verse 23, but throughout uh, the following chapters of Matthew, this, I, this prophecy of Isaiah from from uh, Isaiah 7 all the way to chapter 9, Matthew's saying it's being fulfilled. This God-man will come. This sign of the virgin birth will point to his divinity, that he's God. He will be called mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. And so if you go to Matthew 4, verses 14 to 16, you'll find Isaiah 9 is now quoted for the whole sign of the virgin birth stands behind these early chapters. And Isaiah 7 to 9 is fulfilled in Matthew 1 to 4, Matthew is saying. So it writes, uh, he writes, uh, it quotes in, in verse uh, 16 of Matthew 4, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the darkness in the land of the shadow of death, a light has, has dawned. 
from Isaiah 9. It's all being fulfilled in the sign. It's pointing to this. And then in, the, in, in Isaiah, it continues. Matthew has Isaiah 7 to 9 coherently in his mind. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What will he do? Isaiah tells us. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And what does Jesus preach right after that quotation from Isaiah? Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In him, the king, the God-man, the mighty God. Emmanuel. And how do you know, Matthew says, you know it by the sign of the virgin birth. Do you see? Now, there are perhaps just two other quick points that need to be clarified before we can feel the force of what Matthew is saying. Some say that a sign given in Isaiah 7, fulfilled some 800 years later, is not much of a sign to the original hearers of Isaiah 7. Well, but there are two kinds of signs in the Bible. There are signs which are what Matthias called present persuaders, such as the one given to Moses when he went to Egypt to show God's people that it really had been sent by God. And then there are signs which are what he called future confirmation, such as the signs also, sign also given to Moses, that when they had left Egypt, they would worship at this mountain. So looking back, they would know that God had done it. And this sign is a future confirmation that God has a rescue plan for his people and for all the world in the God-man Jesus. We can look back and go, ah, the sign is fulfilled. See? The, the other confusion that I suppose we have to mention, though it's a little trite, but some people, some, sometimes it's in people's heads. Not trite, but a little. Uh, it, it can readily be answered. The other confusion is over the nature of the virgin birth itself. What is taught here is the virgin conception. Uh, virgin birth is a fine term for it, but it's really the virgin conception. And on other matters, the Bible is silent. And the virgin conception is not that the Holy Spirit took the part of the male in the conception, but that God supernaturally and miraculously brought about conception in Mary. You may say that sort of virgin birth may not be logically necessary for an incarnation, but that is how God did it, and he did it to be a sign to the incarnation, a sign to this is the God-man. Now, having cleared the ground and emphasized what Matthew is saying, which is how this genealogy is unique, how this genealogy This Genesis, this birth of Jesus took place uniquely. I wish now to conclude with uh, how Matthew emphasizes what the birth is to mean to us in three ways. First, the example of Joseph. Now, of course, at Christmas, we tend to think a lot about Mary, and that's fine. We should do. Uh, She is emphasized in Luke's account. But here, Matthew, it's uh, really Joseph who should be in our viewfinder. It's the story told from Joseph's point of view. And I think Joseph is presented to us as a deliberate example of what it means to be a just man, a righteous man, a godly man. And he is righteous in his treatment of Mary. He and Mary were married. 
In Jewish culture, the first step of marriage before you lived together was as legally binding as the second step. And so for him to find her pregnant, the only possible conclusion he could come to was adultery. And the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was stoning, death by capital punishment, that is stoning. But there was a second possibility, a divorce before witnesses in the Old Testament. Joseph, as a righteous man, a just man, he wanted to follow God's word and also to do it in a way that would not shame his wife. You see, a legalistic man uh, might well have uh, shamed his wife. And a liberal man might well have ignored the Bible. But a just man, he follows the Bible in truth and also in love. And how we need righteous men like Joseph who are firm on Scripture and because of that, loving towards sinful people, towards complicated situations towards pain because of Scripture. It is not righteous to blur the clear teaching of Scripture. Joseph does not do that. Nor is it righteous, though, to use the Bible as a sort of weapon. That has been done at times, and Joseph does not do that. A righteous man, you see, is secure in his own righteousness, so does not need to shame the other person to show everyone else that really he is righteous and they are not. That's what's going on here, do you see? What would they have been saying about Joseph? Jump the gun, did you, Joseph? And how tempting it would have been to shame his wife, to prove his innocency, that he was right, just, but securely just, securely righteous. He follows the Bible and does not intend to shame Mary. We need people like that. Perhaps that could be your ambition, to be a righteous man like Joseph. But Joseph's righteousness is also revealed in his obedience to the angel who spoke to him in a dream. Now, we do not know how this took place, but we do know Joseph had no doubt that the dream was from God, not from too much pizza the night before. And when God speaks, a righteous man, that should be all of us who are men. That should all be our ambition. A righteous man will be like Joseph. That is, he will do what God said without delay. And perhaps you're here in church and now you know that the virgin birth is not fiction, but fact. The talk show host, Larry King, was once asked who he would most like to interview. He replied, Jesus Christ. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born The answer to that question would define history for me, he said. Well, now you know the answer to that question. Let it define not just history, but your identity, your future, your time this Christmas, your money. life.
Why? It's the sign that points to the God-man Jesus before whom we bow. And that's why he's called by these two wonderful names. I have to say, uh, I've often wondered why uh, he has these two names right next to each other. Perhaps you have too. Why is it that when the angel tells Joseph to call him Jesus, Matthew then says this is because they will call him Emmanuel, and then Joseph proceeds to call him Jesus? Have you ever noticed that? It's always struck me as slightly strange. There is a typical answer that's given, and the typical answer is that Jesus is the name that they called him, but Emmanuel is one of his titles. And that surely must have some truth to it, but I've never found that answer particularly satisfying because when you look actually at the text, there's a precise connection between the two instructions verbally, um, the two instructions to name the child. So it says, you shall call his name Jesus, and then it says, this is why they shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, Jesus had many titles, Emmanuel, God with us, being one of the most wonderful. But the passage seems to be saying that calling him Jesus explains why they call him Emmanuel. Cynics just say that Matthew misused his sources. He did not notice that one source had one name, another a different name, like a rather poor senior student copying excerpts for his paper from the internet. Oh, that doesn't wash with me either. Matthew's far too careful, a writer, an author, to do that. He's, he's carefully interweaving his story with Isaiah 7 to 9, as we've seen. I think he's telling us something, but what? Well, if we look carefully, he, he, he tells us. See, Jesus is from Yeshua, which is from Yehoshua, meaning originally Yahweh helps. And Yeshua, salvation, it became popularly understood and interpreted. And so Matthew, he tells us he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Who will help? The Lord will help. Who will save? Jesus. And who is Jesus? Emmanuel. God with us. With us. God. Matthew is saying that this great royal line all the way back to David, which had fallen into such disrepair with the Babylonian exile and all the other events that you can read about in the Old Testament, it will be fulfilled with this Davidic king, who will be God himself saving his people from their sins. That's why in Acts... Peter can answer that there is, in this sense, only one name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved, Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, the God-man, Savior. Yeah, God must save. We cannot do it. That's the history of the Old Testament. That's the reality of our lives. God has to do it. Yahweh must help. He must be the Savior. Who is the Savior? Jesus is the Savior. So he's called Jesus to fulfill that he is God. Yahweh saves. Well, perhaps 
you are looking for a savior this Christmas. Maybe you've tried kings or leaders. Maybe you've even tried pastors. Perhaps uh, you've experimented with the best theories and you've become um, disillusioned with their ideals and all the different uh, options that people offer us. See, Christmas is saying, God must save. It is a virgin birth. That's the sign. In other words, as John in his gospel will say, not by human will, but we who believe in this God-man, we too must be saved by God. We must be born of God. He is the Savior. It's not a fashionable, trendy idea. Jesus God-man. Worship Him, the Savior. Let's pray together. Let's uh, just uh, pause to bring to our mind all the different reasons that people offer today why they cannot accept this uh, virgin birth. And let's uh, remember that uh, God is uh, behind the world of order, that uh, the order that we see reflects His character. Let us remember that Matthew tells us how this genealogy took place. And that it runs parallel with the account in Luke. That it perfectly fulfills the expectation of the prophets, Isaiah 7 to 9 in particular. And that this virgin birth is a sign pointing to Jesus. Telling us that we must be saved by the God-man too. Our Father God, as we look at this world of darkness, we are so glad that your light has shone in Christ. Father, would you... Save us. Would you point us by this sign to then the Savior? So that before Him this Christmas, we might bow and worship in adoration. our Savior. For we pray it in 
Jesus' name. Amen.